If you would, go ahead and turn with me now to the book of Romans. And for the last time, we're going to be reading in chapter 3 as we bring to an end our exposition of this chapter. Of course, it probably won't be the last time ever that we look at Romans chapter 3. It's such an important chapter. I'm sure we will see it many more times in the future. But this is the last time in this particular study that we will be looking directly at Romans chapter 3. And we are this morning looking at the very last verse, verse 31. But I want us to begin reading in verse 27. So Romans 3 and verse 27 is where we are going to begin reading. Remember, this is the Word of God, more precious than the breath in our bodies, more precious than all that this world can afford. Verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is He not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In order for you and for me to understand why these last verses of chapter 3 are so important, we need to understand what was at play in Paul's context. In particular, we need to understand how precious the law of God was to the Jews of Paul's day. When we talk about the law of God, here we're speaking of the first books of our Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. These books were given to Israel by God Himself through Moses. Moses commanded the Levites to keep this book of the law beside the Ark of the Covenant in the Holy of Holies, the inner sanctum of the temple. That is how precious it was. It was in this law that the true God revealed Himself to Israel. In the pages of the law is the record of God's special covenant with ancient Israel. This law was Israel's constitution. It was the ultimate legal authority of the land. For centuries, faithful Jews had lived in a remarkably different way than all the other people of the world by keeping this law. Their lifestyle was different. They didn't indulge in the sensual sins of their neighbors. Their worship was different. They worshipped one God, one God only, Jehovah, creator of heaven and earth. 
They kept a kosher diet. They offered sacrifices. They celebrated feast days all in accordance with this law. Faithful Jews found their identity in this law. It was precious to them. It was a part of who they were as Jews. Perhaps more precious than even the Declaration of Independence would be to us as Americans. More than that, the law of God was precious to the identity of ancient Jews. And now, here comes Paul preaching a gospel that says you can have a relationship with God, be right with God, be in covenant with God, no works of the law required, but faith alone. How do you think these Jews took that? What would have been your natural inclination if you had been in their shoes? This law that was so precious to them, in their mind, Paul is demeaning that law. Paul is saying that it's not even necessary in order for one to have a right relationship with God. For some, this was too much. Paul's teaching seemed dangerous. This teaching of Paul, to their ears, meant that that people could believe on Jesus Christ and then live like pagans. This teaching of Paul meant that people could have faith in Jesus and then live as a lawless people. All of their law-keeping as Jews, all of their parents' law-keeping as Jews, all of their grandparents' and great-grandparents' law-keeping. Is Paul saying that all of that was for nothing? That it was a waste? Once we put ourselves in the shoes of the Jews of Paul's day, it shouldn't surprise us to learn that throughout his entire life and ministry as a missionary, Paul was constantly being attacked as an antinomian. Everybody say antinomian. Antinomian. In the Greek, the word nomos means law. So if you are anti-nomos, if you are an anti-nomian, guess what you're anti? Anti the law. Antinomians are people that say that as long as you believe the right things, it does not matter how you live. It's the belief that matters. Quite frankly, antinomianism is still alive and well here in the American Bible Belt. There are literally thousands, more likely millions of people in the American South who seem to believe that as long as you you believe certain truths, it does not matter how you live. And so some parents and grandparents have children and grandchildren who live like hellions in this world, but they're not worried about their souls because they still say they believe on Jesus. And if they believe the right thing, it doesn't matter how they live. Often after a loved one has died, who lived with no real devotion to Christ and His ways and His people, the families will still believe, well, that person's in heaven because when he or she was young, he made a profession of faith. 
You believed certain things. She claimed to believe certain truths. As long as you believe certain things, that's what matters. This is the charge that Paul was constantly having to defend himself against. Paul, your gospel nullifies the law. Your gospel has no place for the law. It makes the law pointless. It overthrows the law so that the commands of God no longer play an important part in their lives. If salvation is by faith alone, as you are claiming, Paul, you are an antinomian, and the result of your preaching will be a whole bunch of people living like pagans, but calling themselves saved. And so Paul's opponents had a very different view. They said, yes, believe on Jesus Christ. But if you really believe on Jesus Christ, you'll submit yourself to the Old Testament law. You'll take the yoke of the Old Testament law upon you and you will keep the ceremonial commandments. You will keep the civil commandments and you will keep the moral commandments. Faith plus works of the law will equal your salvation. They felt that that had to be the gospel or otherwise people would live like hellions in the name of Jesus Christ. So you see the objection in verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? And you see Paul's emphatic response. By no means. On the contrary... We uphold the law. His words are strong. They are emphatic. We must never think that believing on Jesus Christ means that the law is overthrown and has no place in our lives. Rather, he says that it is by believing on Jesus Christ that the law is upheld. Church, I need you to think. I know this is a little bit difficult, but it's really astounding. What Paul is saying in this verse, he is saying that the gospel of salvation by faith alone, apart from the works of the law, is upholding the law. How can this be? How can it be that believing on Jesus upholds the law? Honestly, chapter 4 is largely going to be about this. This morning what I want to do is show you two ways from Romans 4. And then I'm going to take you somewhere else in the Bible and show you a third way that believing on Jesus Christ upholds the Old Testament law. Number one, believing in Jesus upholds the law because the law itself teaches salvation by faith alone. Let me say it again. Believing on Jesus upholds the law because the law itself teaches salvation by faith alone. How can you say that the message of salvation by faith alone overthrows the law if it's the law that teaches salvation by faith alone? In fact, it is those who teach salvation by faith plus works who are in fact contradicting the very teaching of the law itself. Look at Romans 4. Look at the example of Abraham. 
Let's begin in verse 1. By the way, what book is the story of Abraham in? Genesis. What is Genesis a part of? The law. Verse 1. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in the one who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Listen carefully to this argument. Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. We will spend many weeks on those verses. Here's the point. Abraham is the father of the Jews. For the Jews, Abraham was the very model of everything it means to belong to God. It was Abraham who had first received the great promises of God. His story is right at the beginning of the law. It was a story that every Jew knew. What does the law teach in the story of Abraham? How was Abraham saved? Did he believe on God, then keep works of the law, being circumcised, and then he was counted righteous? Or was he counted righteous when he believed alone? Before Abraham was ever circumcised or kept any sort of ritual command, he believed God's promise and Genesis 15:6 says that his faith was counted as righteousness. Oh dear Jew who counts the law as so precious, what does your law teach about the way of salvation? Paul says that the law teaches the same gospel he's just unpacked in Romans 3, 21-26. Justification by faith alone. So the narratives of the law teach the gospel of salvation by faith alone. But then, what about all those commands? What's Leviticus about? Right? 
What, what is command after command after command and, and at the second half of Exodus and all of Leviticus and almost all of Numbers and almost all of Deuteronomy? What are all of those commands about? Well, dear friends, every command of the Old Testament law was ultimately given to bring about faith. The ceremonial laws about sacrifices and about feast days all had Jesus Christ at the center of them. These ceremonies preached the gospel so that those whom God gave eyes to see would see and believe and be saved. Even the civil laws with all of their instructions about which tribe of Israel was going to camp where and which tribe of Israel was going to march out first and all of these civil commands were teaching Israel about God. That He is a God of order. That He is a God of wisdom. That He is a God of understanding. A God worthy of trust. The moral laws of the Old Testament dealing with violence and property rights and sexual purity and honoring parents. All of these ultimately were given to teach the very character of God, to reveal the unrighteousness of men's hearts, to lead people to humble faith. If the primary purpose of the law is to preach a gospel of salvation by faith, and to lead people to that faith, then how can you say that the gospel of salvation by faith overthrows the law? No, Paul says, my gospel is upholding the law. Salvation by faith alone is in accordance with the Old Testament law. Number two, believing in Jesus upholds the law because the law taught the future salvation of the nations. Let me say it again. Believing in Jesus upholds the law because the law taught the future salvation of the nations. Remember, underneath Paul's desire to protect the gospel and to defend the gospel against its enemies, underneath all of that is Paul's missionary heart. The reason he has written this epistle to the Romans is because he wants their help. He wants their support as he seeks to take the gospel to those who have never heard the name of Jesus in Spain and beyond. But his opponents are teaching that a person cannot truly remain a Gentile and be saved. They are teaching that a person must become not just a spiritual Jew in the sense of being Abraham's descendant by faith. No, they are saying that you must go preach a gospel that says if you would be a Christian, you must submit to the Old Testament law. You must, in effect, become a true Jew in every sense of the word. You must be circumcised if you're a man. You must keep the ceremonies. You must keep the rituals. You cannot remain a Greek. You cannot remain a Roman. You cannot remain an Ethiopian and be saved. You must join yourself to the Old Testament covenant of God with the Jews established at Mount Sinai. 
But friends, is that the message that the law itself teaches? The law does not say that that's how salvation works, but just the opposite. God told Abraham that he would become the father of many nations, not just one nation, that everyone else must join it. No, 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 many nations. Look again at Romans 4, verses 9 through 12. Is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? That is, Gentiles. Gentiles who remain Gentiles. Right? We say that blessing, we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. That means you can be saved and still not be circumcised. That is, not keeping ceremonial ritual laws. The purpose was to make Him the Father of all who believe without being circumcised so that the righteousness would be counted to them as well. In other words, the law itself teaches in the example of Abraham that the nations would be saved by faith alone apart from works of the law. So to tell Paul as the missionary to the Gentiles that he must preach a gospel of faith plus keeping the works of the Old Testament law is to tell Paul to do something that the law itself did not say would be required. Paul says, my gospel of salvation by faith alone for any who would believe of any ethnicity, of any, any cultural background. He said that is the law, the, the, the gospel that the law itself taught. It is the gospel that the law promised and predicted. Number three. Are you still with me, church? Are you still with me? I know it's, it's an old debate, right? It's an old debate because this is happening while the temple was still there. And while people were still making sacrifices and while people were still having feast days. And, and it won't be long after Paul was writing this that there will be no more temple. And it will be pretty clear for those with eyes to see where God stands on the issue. Because you can't keep the ceremonial law anymore. The temple's gone. right? But it was an important debate because the very gospel itself was at stake. And because Paul's missionary endeavors were at stake. Number three. Here's where it really hits home for our day. Believing in Jesus upholds the law because the morality that the gospel produces is the same as what the law required. The morality that the gospel produces is the same as what the law required. Listen carefully and think about this with me. I hope it will be helpful. The civil laws and the ceremonial laws that God gave to Israel perished along with ancient Israel. 70 AD is sort of the the main date, if you want one in mind. 
when Jesus appeared on the earth, the one whom those laws had pointed to, he was here and the shadow was needed no longer. Once the Son had came, to whom all the old civil and ceremonial laws had pointed, they were needed no more. God caused the shadows to perish so that we would focus on the real thing, His Son. But when Paul writes this, that hasn't fully happened yet. That's why this debate was still going on. But what really concerned some of Paul's opponents were not the civil laws and not the ceremonial laws. What really concerned them was morality. What really concerned them was that Paul's gospel would lead to people living immoral lives in the name of Jesus. Paul, if salvation is by faith alone, doesn't this mean people can live immorally and be saved? Salvation must be by faith plus works of the law. Otherwise, God will be a God of an immoral church. Later in Romans, Paul is going to go to great lengths to show that if a person has truly believed on Jesus Christ, it will change the way he or she lives. Did you hear me? If a person has believed on Jesus Christ, it will change the way he or she lives. A person cannot truly have faith in Jesus Christ and remain an immoral person. In fact, it is through faith in Jesus that people who before could never truly obey the law from the heart suddenly find that they can do real good from the heart. Indeed, were it not for the gospel, the morality taught in the law would never even be possible by a human being. Now, there have always been those who argue that the morality taught in the Old Testament, including the Ten Commandments, ended with the Old Covenant, ended with the destruction of ancient Israel. They say that the law of the Old Covenant is replaced by a new law, A law of love. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think that the morality of the Ten Commandments, the morality taught in the Old Covenant, the morality taught in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, is the same morality that is developed in us as we believe the Gospel. In other words... As we believe the gospel, the morality of the Old Testament, the morality of all testaments, the morality that is the very character of God itself, begins to be formed in us. The law of love taught in the New Testament is not contradictory to the morality of the Old Testament or the Ten Commandments. It's the same thing. True love is seen in us living in accordance with real morality, as taught in both Testaments. Ultimately, the moral law of God is a description of His holy character, and God does not change. And ultimately, the morality that God has called you and I to have is this, be holy as I am holy. So whether you lived in the days of Adam, or the days of Abraham, 
or the days of Moses, or the days of David, or the days of Jesus, or the days of Paul, or in the year 2011, the character of a godly person has always been the same. And so I want to point you to a passage. Look with me at 1 Timothy 1. 1 Timothy 1. And I want us to look at verses 8 through 11. Verses 8 through 11. Beginning in verse 8, 1 Timothy 1. Now we know that the law is what? Good if one uses it lawfully. That is, there is a way to misuse the law. But if one uses the law right, it is a good thing. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the, what? Gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Notice that the moral laws that Paul mentions in these verses are verses which are moral laws which come right out of the Old Testament. Right? He talks about striking father and mother, about murder, about sexual immorality, about lying and perjuring. Right? In fact, he's, he's following the Ten Commandments in this list of sins, right? Commandment five, honor your father and mother, right? Those who strike their fathers and mothers. Commandment six, don't murder for murderers. Commandment seven, don't commit adultery. The sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, right? Commandment eight, don't steal. Enslavers, by the way, that's the word kidnappers. It's talking about people who steal people, right? Commandment nine, don't bear false witness. Liars, perjurers. So he chooses part of the Ten Commandments, five, six, seven, eight, and nine, and he just lists them in these commands. These are the commands of the Old Testament law, and then he says, and whatever else, talking about the sins, is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Why is Paul quoting the Ten Commandments here? Is he quoting them to say, these are Old Testament covenants, these are Old Testament laws, we believe on Jesus, we don't need the law any longer. Is that what he's saying here? Absolutely not. Instead, listen carefully, he says that these commandments are a part of sound doctrine. That these commandments are in accordance with the gospel. The very gospel to which he's been entrusted the, the very gospel that he's been entrusted with, right? The very gospel that he has unpacked in Romans 3. In other words, Paul says that following the Ten Commandments is in accordance with the gospel that God gave me to preach. If people believe the gospel, if people truly trust Christ, the Ten Commandments and the morality taught in the Old Testament will be living and breathing in God's people. 
In other words, we don't overthrow the law because of the gospel. We keep it. We uphold it. It's only in people who believe the gospel that the law can truly shine forth and people can see how precious God's commands really are. This is why we cannot be among those who talk about the law of God as some negative thing that we can have nothing to do with. John Stott says, The moral standards of the gospel do not differ from the moral standards of the law. We must not therefore imagine that because we have embraced the gospel, we may now repudiate the law. It's not like that. It's not a gospel, therefore we have nothing to do with the law. Rather, it's the law presents a way of living that honors God, and because of the gospel, that can become real in us. And so the law still has a precious place in our lives, Mount Hermon. The morality that God has given all mankind in the Ten Commandments, which was expressed in many different laws given to the Old Testament Jews, is the morality that sinful people like you or me could never truly accomplish on our own. But by believing on Jesus Christ, the very morality of the Bible, the very character of God, should be increasingly characterizing us. God's people grow to reflect God's glory. Christ's bride gradually grows to reflect Christ's image. God doesn't just say, be holy as I am holy, but then through the gospel, He actually enters into us by the Holy Spirit through faith and begins to make it so. So what are the implications? Justin, this has been a nice little theological talk and all. What does it have to do with our real lives? What bearing does this have on my week this week? I'm just going to give you two quick implications. Number one, love the law. Don't despise it. Love the law. Don't despise it. For a century and a half, there has been this view that has taken hold of Christianity in America called dispensationalism. Dispensationalism has caused people to look at the law of God as something almost that is evil. Certainly as something that we are to be apart from. Dispensationalism says that the Old Testament law is only about Israel. It has nothing to do with us. Friends, that is not true. The law of God in the Old Testament helps us to know who God is. The law of God in the Old Testament teaches us the morality of what it means to live for His glory. The law of God teaches us how to be a blessing to those we love. And through the gospel, the law of God is now something we can begin to achieve because we can do all things through Christ gives us strength. You think healing leprosy is a miracle? You think calming the wind and the waves is a miracle? Here is the glory of Christ. He takes fallen human hearts and turns them into hearts that actually delight to do the will of God. That is a miracle. Do you know what it is 
to say to God the way David did, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Love the law. Don't despise it. Number two. Live in such a way that the charge of antinomianism will never stick. Live in such a way that the charge of antinomianism will never stick. We are not saved by keeping God's law. We are saved that we will be able to keep the morality of God's law. We are not saved by being moral people. We are saved in order that we may become moral people. We are not saved by good works. We are saved that we might be able to do good works for the glory of God. There is too much antinomianism in our land. There are too many people who have been assured that they are okay with Jesus because they say they have faith even though their actions each and every day show they don't actually trust Him enough to do what He says. They made a profession of faith. Isn't that what matters? Friends, true faith will show itself in a love for the law and a carefulness to conform one's life to the commands of God. Test yourselves. True faith will show itself in a love for the law and a carefulness to conform one's life to the very character of God taught in the law. Young people in this room, I would speak directly to you. What do you think about the commands of the Bible? The Bible says to love God, to honor your parents, to tell the truth, to not take things that don't belong to you. The law tells you to be kind to others, to be sober-minded, to strive for excellence in everything that you do. What do you think about these commands? Did God give these commands to you to be mean to you? Did God give these commands to you to make your life harder? Do you wish God had never given you these commands? Do you think you'd be happier if you never had them or heard them? Or could it be that by grace you've already begun to understand that God gave you these commands because He loves you? God gave you these commands because following them will lead you to greater happiness than if you didn't follow them. God is not trying to make your life hard, just the opposite. He says, believe on Jesus, and Jesus will give you the strength to keep these commands. Young people, do you love the commands of God? Are they sweet to you? Or are they sour to you? Sweet or sour? That's the question, church. No, it's lunchtime. Sweet or sour? I love Chinese. I immediately think of chicken. Sorry. One of the marks of grace in your life, if you're a Christian, will be that you see the commands of God as something sweet, a present from God for your good. When you trust God, that's faith, these commandments will be precious and you will put them into practice. Your faith will result in good works for the glory of God. So Mount Hermon, where do we stand on the law of God? Are we opposed to it? 
Do we despise it? Do we seek to overthrow it? God forbid. On the contrary. We say with David, I love your commandments above gold, above fine gold. We uphold the law. May God make this so for his glory and for our good. Let's pray. Just a moment, we're going to take the Lord's Supper together.